Well, hello everyone, good morning. Uh, my name is Taylor, if I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, I would love to, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are beginning a new series. Uh, and we're, from now until Easter, we're gonna be looking at the final days of the life of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion. And of course, as we gear up towards re uh, responding to and uh, rejoicing in and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, we're gonna be looking at these last final days of the life of Jesus, building up to his death. What did he prioritize? What did he talk about? What does it show us about what it means that he came and lived a life that we haven't lived and died a death in our place in victory over sin and death and the powers of darkness and rose again as a down payment of first fruits, the first of a new creation that's coming when he returns. And so uh, we are gonna be exploring those themes and, and specifically as we hone in on what Christians have historically called the Passion Week this last week of the life of Jesus. Here's the big idea that we're gonna tease out. The big idea is this. Suffering precedes something better. Suffering precedes something better. As we look at Jesus gearing up towards his darkest hour, the hour that he would be betrayed, that he would be, uh, that he would be turned on by those he came to save, that he would be put to death unjustly, that he would enter into the full darkness of the human experience bearing the weight of human sin in his life, dying on the cross, we see that suffering leads to something better. Because on the other side is resurrection, on the other side is new life, on the other side is the redemption accomplished for us in Jesus. And as we look at the life of Jesus, the final days of the life of Jesus, we're gonna see that suffering precedes something better. So we're starting, we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew. So we're gonna be starting in Matthew, the end of 23, beginning of 24, if you got your own Bible. You can pull up there. We're going to be in Matthew 23, verse 37 to 24, 14 today. And then we're just going to kind of work through in the, in the narrative of the gospel of Matthew, the last final days of the life of Jesus for the next few weeks leading up to Easter. But we'll start here. This is a section uh, that Christians have historically called the Olivet Discourse, which is just a fancy way of saying a talk that Jesus gave in a place called the, the, Garden, uh, the Garden of Olives or the Mount of Olives. And so um, it's just, this is a, we're going to cover this little beginning section of, of something Jesus taught taught um, right before his crucifixion. So Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 24, 14. You can pull that up um, or just listen as I read aloud. I'll read, I'll pray and ask the spirit of God to, to speak to us even here on a windy day at the beach and uh, we'll see what God has to say to us. So Matthew 20, 23, 37 to 24, 14. We're beginning with the words of Jesus. So this first verse, this section is gonna be from the words of Jesus as he looks out on Jerusalem and, and laments over their hard-heartedness. And here's what he says, starting in verse 37. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing See, your house is left desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, and he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one, upon, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. 
For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my sake. And many uh, will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures till the end will be saved. And this good news, this gospel of the kingdom will be pronounced throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Let's pray that, and ask that God would speak to us. Let's talk to God right now. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, uh, we're so grateful for your grace. We're grateful even for the, the wind this morning, um, brisk though it may be. Uh, we're grateful that it reminds us that we're alive, and uh, we feel it. We remember that your spirit moves like wind, and we pray, God, spirit, that you would move. Would you speak to us through this text? As we open up our hearts, our, 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 your word, would you open up our hearts, God? I pray that you would give us not just information in our heads, but transformation in our hearts. I pray, God, that you would uh, speak to us each in a fresh way, God. Every person here, every person watching online, every person gathered with us matters to you. You love us inside and out and know us more than we know ourselves. And so I pray, God, that you would speak to us, whether these things are familiar or totally unfamiliar, whether the passage we just read totally freaks us out and we're wondering what the heck we're doing here. What does this even mean? Why did I come? I pray that you would teach us. Would you speak to us? And we pray, God. I pray that you would draw us towards yourself, God, that we become the kind of men and women that you always made us to be. And God, thank you that we can bring our whole selves to you, knowing that your grace covers us and there's literally nothing that any of us could ever do that would make you love us less. Thank you for the work of Jesus. Thank you for your grace. We just pray, come Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, how important is it to see through the right lens? If you were to ask NASA, they would tell you that it's worth at least a couple billion dollars. See, back in the early 1990s, uh, NASA launched the Hubble telescope into space, and it was a revolutionary piece of technology. Nothing like it had ever been developed before. It was a high-definition telescope that they were going to put up in orbit uh, outside of Earth's atmosphere, outside of the distortion of Earth's atmosphere. And because it was outside of Earth's atmosphere and free from the distortion that comes from trying to look through the Earth's atmosphere, it was going to be able to see further into space more clearly than any telescope in, in the history of the technology and they were going to scientists were going to be able to study the universe in a way that was unprecedented they were going to be able to search the stars in a way that was unprecedented it was going to lead towards discoveries and innovation it was an unprecedented piece of technology it cost years uh, years and years of time hundreds and thousands of people's worth of expertise and billions of dollars in development and not to mention a very risky space, uh, space shuttle journey to get it up into space and a spacewalk from trained astronauts to get it uh, into place. And after all this was done and Hubble was finally put up into space and the world was ready to see what all of the time and effort and expertise and money was to produce, 
they got the first images back, and what they found was that Hubble was nearsighted. See, uh, there was on one of the mirrors that functioned in the lens of the telescope, uh, there, was a, there was a curvature of the mirror that was a fraction of a millimeter off. Just a fraction of a millimeter off. And in that fraction of a millimeter off, it completely distorted the images. And so the images that came back were a reflection of reality. They were pointed up. I don't know what the first thing they looked at was, but whatever quasar, galaxy, or star they had pointed at first, it was a reflection of what it really looked like, but distorted, but blurred. Not reality as it is all the way. And so... NASA spent more time and more money and more expertise and another risky space journey from a team of astronauts in a space shuttle to go ahead and fix the mirror and solve the problem. Now, I don't know if you've ever made a mistake at work that cost your team or your company something, but, well, who's to say? But I was, uh, what I would guess is that none of us have made that big of an error. But I don't know, uh, who knows? Uh, and if that's you, God bless you. There's so much grace for you and you are so much more than what you do for your work and this is a community that welcomes you in. But the point is, if you're to ask NASA, seeing with the right lens is worth a couple billion dollars and all the time and effort and money because it makes all the difference in the world. See, seeing through the right lens changes everything. Seeing through the right lens helps us to see reality clearly and rightly and therefore respond and navigate it accordingly. And all of that begs the question for someone following Jesus or someone exploring life with Jesus if you're not yet sold on him yet and you're joining us here because you're curious. The question that's begging to be asked from that truth is, is there a lens through which Jesus calls me to see my life, my reality, my decisions, and reality, the world itself? Is there a lens that Jesus calls us to look through? Is there a lens that should inform the way that I live my life, the decisions that I make, the way that I view my entire life itself? And in Jesus' teaching here in the Gospel of Matthew, right at the tail end of his life, days before he'll be betrayed and unjustly tried and crucified on a Roman cross, alone and naked on a hill, right before these things are coming, all of which Jesus knew would take place, Jesus takes time to teach us, and what he teaches us is to be a lens that, that we see our life through. It's to be something that reframes the way that we navigate our lives, the way that we live our day-to-day, -day, the way that we see life itself. Because as Jesus um, begins this teaching, and he's, he's coming to Jerusalem up to this point, so we're catching the narrative at a point where Jesus has already come into Jerusalem, and if you're familiar with the story of the life of Jesus, uh, it's uh, the, what, what Christians have called Palm Sunday has already happened, so the day where Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and he's welcomed and receptive, and the people say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and he's welcomed, and people are wondering, is this the one? Is this the anointed one of God, the, what, what the Hebrew scriptures call the Messiah, the one who will bring the kingdom of God, who will undo the brokenness of the world. And at the time, there were some distorted expectations of what that, that anointed one would do, what the rescuer would do. But they were wondering, could this be the one? And he comes, and we're waiting as readers, looking at the life of Jesus, wondering what's going to happen next. And things start to go badly. And this is what Jesus had been telling his disciples privately would happen all throughout his ministry, but leading up to this point, 
Now, towards his crucifixion, Jesus begins to teach about what will happen at the end. He begins to teach about, uh, here in this passage, he, he foretells the destruction of the temple, the temple in the center of Jerusalem. And he begins uh, now in this discourse on the Mount of Olives to use what's going to happen with the temple as kind of a microcosm and a foretaste of what will happen at the very end, at the culmination of history. And that, depending on your personality and your interests and your experience with life with Jesus and the particular subcultures that you've grown up in, hearing me even mention that that's where we're going can create all kinds of reactions, right? For some of you, you're just like clinching and nervous and like, oh gosh, why did I come this Sunday? Like, we're, oh no, not like end time stuff. Like this is just funky and weird. Other of you guys are like, finally, and you're pulling out your chart right now, right? And you're just like, yes, so like you've got, you know, are you familiar with that meme with the guy from like Sunny, Phil, Sunny from Philadelphia? Some of you are like, no, I'm not, so why are you doing this? Some of you are, so whatever. There's this chart. There, there, there's, there's this meme of a guy. A meme is a joke that's made on the internet. Anyway, and it's, he's got this chart, and there's all these like connecting lines behind him, and he's got this crazed look in his eye. Maybe that's you, right? You're the crazed chart person. That's fine, too. Whatever, but there's a wide array of experiences. None of those experiences would lead us to think that that's a lens through which we should view our entire lives. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And so here's how we're going to spend our time. We're going to look at this passage, walk through it, and we're going to see that Jesus is reframing our lives for us. He's giving us the true lens through which we are to see. And in the end of Matthew 23, in the beginning of Matthew 24, Jesus is giving us this. He's giving us a new lens that's to reframe our view of today. It's to reframe our priorities until the day, that's, that is, the day that he returns. And finally, it's to reframe our joy in what God has already done through him. So Jesus is in this teaching before his crucifixion, days before he dies, teaching us about what's to come at the end. He's reframing our view of today. He's reframing our priorities until the day. And he's reframing for us our joy in what God has come to do through Jesus. And so let's begin by looking at how what Jesus is teaching here reframes our view of today. So, um, like I've said, this passage begins with Jesus lamenting over the hard-heartedness of his people that he's come to rescue. And he foretells the destruction of the temple. Now, we know historically that happened uh, in AD 70, about 40 years after the events of Matthew 23 and 24 here in our text. Uh, and he's using that as kind of like a, 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 a microcosm or kind of a, a, a foretaste of what will happen at the culmination of history. But the whole passage hinges on two questions that the disciples asked Jesus. The disciples asked Jesus, okay, the temple's going to be destroyed, so when is that going to happen? That's shocking. And secondly, what will be the sign of your coming at the end? Okay, if it's not now, Jesus, because we were kind of thinking maybe this would be it, maybe you coming to Jerusalem and being welcomed and celebrated by the people, we thought maybe this would be the culmination of history, maybe you were going to reconcile all things, maybe you were going to do away with sin and injustice and you were going to establish God's kingdom, and maybe this would be what has happened, but if it's not now, then when is it going to be? So when will the temple be destroyed, and what will be the signs of your coming at the end of the age? Now, Jesus does get into answering those questions later in Matthew 24. But actually, what I'm going to argue in the text that we just read at the beginning of Matthew 24 is Jesus really doesn't directly answer those questions. 
Jesus doesn't really directly answer the question, when will the temple be destroyed, uh, or what will be the signs of the end of the age? What will be the signs of the culmination of history before he returns? Now, he does get into that a little bit, like I said. He talks about the destruction of the temple, and he talks about the destruction of the temple as a foretaste of what will happen at the end, and he gives kind of a portrait of what life will be like then. But, um, but in this beginning section, actually what Jesus is doing is something quite different. He's framing for us the entire conversation. And in framing it, he's actually reframing for us how we're to view our lives as a whole. He's, he's framing for us the reality in which we live today. So how does Jesus respond? So he, he responds to them, these questions. When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the signs at the end of the age? He talks about, uh, we could see all these very negative things happening, right? He talks about there being false teachers, and there being wars, and there being natural disasters, and there being persecution. But in this section, what does he say uh, about all of those things? In 24.6, I'll read it for you here. He says, you'll hear uh, there were wars and rumors of wars. And see that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But, and here's where this is important for what he's talking about in this section. He says, but the end is not yet. So he's talking about all these examples of brokenness in God's creation. All these examples of the world not being all that it was meant to be. War, violence, injustice, persecution, natural disasters, things that are the world as uh, less than it should be. World under the conditions of, uh, of, of brokenness in God's creation. But what he says is that those things are going to continue to happen, but the end is not yet. They're asking him, when is the end going to be? And he says, before he gets to any details about that, he says, the world is going to continue to be broken. But when you see the world continuing to be broken, know that the end is not yet. What he's doing is he's normalizing brokenness between the fall, which we'll get into in a moment, but basically sin entering the world continuing all the way up until Jesus comes again. And what he's saying is, before I get into any details about signs or things that there's going to be an accelerated kind of brokenness before the end comes, before any of that, let me normalize for you the world that you live in. It is not all that it should be. Here's what one of the commentators said about, uh, about this passage talking about the whole discourse that we didn't cover all of here, but specifically this beginning section that we're looking at. He said, while many readers search this chapter eager for signs of the end, the theme of much of it, especially this section, is the danger of jumping too quickly to conclusions that the end, in whatever sense, is imminent. So what Jesus is saying here is, let me reframe for you your expectations for what's happening in the here and now. It's going to continue to be broken. And simply because you see things being broken, don't jump too quickly to the idea that the end is coming now. There will be a time where the brokenness of the world accelerates right before Jesus comes at the end. But Jesus says at the end of this discourse here, at the end of Matthew 24, he says, but no one knows the day or the hour. And so even as he gives us details about, about those things, he's he's framing for us a new way of thinking so that we don't, don't jump to conclusions because in the age we live in now, 
in life as presently constructed, brokenness will continue. But there's more to the story than just that. Because if that's all there is, if all Jesus is trying to do is saying, hey, guys, listen, until I come back, things are going to be bad. <laughs> there's going to be war. There's going to be famine. You get persecuted. There's going to be natural disasters. If that's all Jesus is doing, this is some pretty depressing stuff, right? So what the heck? Is Jesus just trying to make us depressed? What's he doing here? Well, let's look at verse 24, 8, and we'll see what, how Jesus is reframing for us. See, in Matthew 24, verse 8, Jesus says this. Speaking of all the brokenness that he's unpacking here, he says, all these are but the beginnings of birth pains. All these are but the beginnings of birth pains. So here is how this reframes what's happening. Here's the lens through which we're to see. He says, life is going to continue to be broken. And in the end, the brokenness will accelerate right before I come back at the culmination of history. But all of it, everything in everything that's not the way that it should be in this age of existence, all of that is our birth pains. Well, what is this telling us? Birth pains are painful, like real pain, like actual real pain. You know, when um, Becca, my wife and I, when we were uh, expecting our first child and Becca went into labor, she had a, a pretty long labor for our first child. So we were in the hospital for a long time and it was very slow to develop. And so early on, um, she was having contractions and they were painful, but we also just kind of had a lot of time to just kind of be together in the room waiting. And as we were waiting and things weren't that intense yet, Another woman was rushed into the hospital who was ready to go. And she was in the worst of it. And this was our first child, so we had never, we had never done this before. And we hear down the hallway just an ear-piercing scream of pain. And I just kind of look at Becca, and she just is like wide-eyed, like, oh, no. And this woman is screaming, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts. And I'm just looking at Becca like, I'm so sorry, sweetie, I'm so sorry. And then, and then she gets to the room, literally right next to us, and she's screaming, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. And I'm just holding my wife's hand like, I'm so sorry, sweetie, this is what we're in for, oh, my gosh. But fortunately, she was, this woman was ready to go, and so it didn't last very long, and it was over, and then we heard the baby cry, but the baby crying was sweet and beautiful because the baby came because here is what's true of birth pains. It's real pain, but at the end of it is what? It's new life. It's a child. It's your family growing. It's, it's an image of God, an image bearer of God coming into the world. It's your precious baby there in your arms, the one you've been waiting for and praying for and looking forward to bringing into your family. Birth pains are painful, like real pain. But on the other end is good. On the other end is something that is worth it. On the other end is beauty and goodness. And Jesus here is showing us that life is broken. And life will continue to be broken until he comes again. And it will accelerate into more brokenness right at the very end before he comes again. And he's warning us not to jump too quickly to conclusions about when that's going to be because life's broken always. And so we ought not jump too quickly to conclusions. And yet, and yet, all of that are birth pains. They're pain, real pain, that is going to produce something beautiful and good and redemptive in the hands of a redemptive God. God is tapping into, or Jesus here in this passage is tapping in to the story of redemption that God is weaving together in Jesus. 
he's tapping together the story of, uh, of the beauty and goodness of God's creation, that God created this world good, free of injustice and suffering and pain and sin, a life in, of, of humankind in harmony with our creator, with creation, living in harmony with each other in perfect connection with God and each other. And yet, because of sin, because we've mistrusted God and tried to make a way on our own, instead of orienting our lives around God, each in our own way, we've oriented our lives around something that God created, and we've trusted our own way rather than God's way, and we've redefined good and evil on our terms rather than his terms. Because of that, injustice and brokenness and sin have entered the world, and God's creation is not all that it was meant to be, and our lives are not all that it was meant to be, and now we live under the conditions of that reality, and that those conditions are going to continue until God makes a way, because God is making a way, and even from the very beginning, he promised that he would restore what was lost in what Christians call the fall in our sin. He was going to make a way for the injustice and brokenness and sin that we unleashed into the world to be redeemed and for creation itself to be restored and for any who would trust in him to be reunited with God. And in the end, God is going to bring together what was lost and he's going to renew creation. The end is not just people that trust him getting zapped into heaven, but the actual end of the story is Jesus coming again to reunite heaven and earth in a new creation, life restored to what it was always meant to be, but even sweeter for having been redeemed. And that is what God is accomplishing in Jesus. And so Jesus is framing for us now. Brokenness is going to continue. Injustice is going to continue. Uh, things that are not all that they were meant to be in our lives individually and in the world writ large, writ large are to continue. And at the very end, it's going to accelerate and get worse. But all of it are birth pains because I'm doing something, God is saying, in Jesus. I am doing something that is going to be beautiful and redemptive and good in the end. And in your life, if you'll trust me, if you'll live my kind of life and, and live with me, I will do something in the end, in the big picture, that even in the brokenness that you experience in your life, it will be beautiful and good and redeemed in the end. What Jesus is doing is he's reframing our today. He's saying, there's injustice today. There's suffering and pain today but it's birth pains. I'm doing something redemptive and good through it, and the story has a happy ending. And before we move any further, I, I want to be really clear about what we don't mean. What we don't mean, what Jesus does not mean here, he doesn't mean that every single painful or disappointing or unjust or hurtful thing that happens to us is going to have an obvious reason behind it. What he's not saying is that every bad thing that happens is because of some obvious good thing that's gonna come out of it. He's not saying that we're gonna see like one door close and automatically another door open. He's not saying that we're gonna understand the, the specific redemptive good that's gonna come from every bad thing that will happen. He's talking about the big picture. He's talking about if you'll trust me, I'm gonna to weave together something so beautiful out of the world's brokenness, so beautiful out of, out of your brokenness in eternity that it will be like the coming of a child after birth pains. But it's not gonna be like every bad thing that happens is gonna have an obvious reason behind it. This is something that I've, I've wrestled with in my own life over even, even over the last couple of years. Some of you guys know this just about Beck and I and our story, but um, two and a half years ago, 
we, we lost Becca's father um, far earlier than we thought we would. He was in his late 50s, um, healthy um, for the most part, and we expected to have 25 more years of him with our family and our kids and enjoying him in our lives. And um, we prayed fervently that God would heal him at the end when, when, his, when his illness got the most pronounced. We asked, we begged God to heal him. And a community of people came around him and begged God to heal him. And God chose not to. God loves us, and we're in his hands, and in in wisdom that we don't understand, he chose not to heal my father-in-law. And we wrestled, I wrestled deeply with why God made that choice. I remember just days after he passed, just laying on the floor of our bathroom and just just weeping, asking God, why? Why didn't you answer our prayer? We were so fervently praying. We know you can. We know you love us. And uh, the honest reality is uh, there have been some really good things that have come in the wake of his passing. His memorial service was such a beautiful testimony to the gospel, to the goodness of God, to the saving grace of Jesus. But there's no obvious reason that God chose not to answer our prayers. There's no, like, bow that, uh, that you put on the package that makes it just this beautiful hallmark story. It's been a lot of pain. But you know what I know is true in the big, big picture? In ways that I don't yet understand what God is weaving together is that this is birth pains. It's God in the pain of an unjust world, not all that it should be, weaving together something beautiful and redemptive and good that will come together in Jesus when he comes again. Do you know how we know that? We know it because of what we see happening in Jesus' life in this text, in the narrative of the story. Because why, would, why is Jesus telling this now, at this point in his life? Jesus is days away from being crucified. He's going to be betrayed. Literally the worst thing that ever happened in human history is about to happen to Jesus. The second person in the Trinity, the creator of the universe, has come to his people to rescue them and they're rejecting him, and they're going to murder him. God came, and we murdered him. And what happened through that? The forgiveness of sins, the defeat of darkness, my redemption and your redemption came through the worst thing that ever happened. Jesus even, in John chapter 16, he uses the same image of birth pains to describe What's happening to him? He tells his disciples, I'm going to die, and it's going to be bad. But it's going to be birth pains until I'm resurrected and you see me again. What Jesus is showing us is that the redemption that happens in his suffering, the redemption that happens through his death and resurrection, is a picture of what God is doing in all of human history and in our lives if we will trust him. We know that God is able to work beauty and redemption out of suffering because God worked beauty and redemption out of the worst suffering that ever happened in the Son of God as he died in our place on the cross. And in a very important way, Passion Week, the week of Jesus' suffering leading up to his death and the redemption that came as a result of it on the other side in his resurrection that we'll celebrate on Easter, is a picture of all of human history. That all of human history is Passion Week. 
It's brokenness that's birth pains producing something beautiful and good. So how is this a lens? How is this a lens that's meant to reframe how we view our life, our today? So often we just go through life on autopilot. Life is just life, right? We just have responsibilities. We wake up in the morning, we got kids to take care of and things on our to-do list and jobs to be done and leisure activities that we hope to enjoy and time to unwind at the end of the day and then we go to bed and, and, then, and then we do it all over again. But Jesus is inviting us to see all of that, the good, the bad, and the ugly, through the lens of what God is doing in the big picture to see the brokenness of our life as birth pains, the good things as a reminder of the better that's to come, and the suffering as a reminder that God is working together something beautiful and good in Jesus. And when we look through that lens, it resets our priorities of how to live in the here and now. But Jesus is inviting us to view our lives through the big picture lens, to see that he's coming again, to see that the see that the things that we most long for, the life we most long for, is not something we'll experience here, although there's goodness to be experienced here. But it's what God will do when Jesus comes again and reunites heaven and earth and brings a new creation and will experience life as it was always meant to be. And in the meantime, God's producing something in us, something redemptive and good through the process. It's the lens that God's inviting us in Jesus to see. And so right now, before we move on, and and we'll just quickly get through what else is going on in this text. Not that it's not important, because actually it's hugely important. But before we move on, let's take a moment to pause and to see life through this lens. Let's take a moment to reframe our today through the lens of what Jesus will do in the day what God is doing in the meantime, the birth pains that will result in beauty and redemptive goodness. So right now, I'm going to lead us just through a moment of prayer before we, before we finish out our text here. And I just want to invite you to, right now to take a deep breath. If you're closing your eyes helps to close your eyes. Just listen to the waves. And chilly as it may be, feel the wind on your face. God, we pray that you'd speak to us right now. We want to see life through the lens that you're inviting us to see through. We pray, God, that you would reframe for us our today. And right now, if there's anything in just going on in your life uh, that is worrying you, that's frustrating or disappointing or painful, big or small. Is anything you're just carrying, anything weighty that you're carrying right now? You should just name it before God. Just the quiet of your heart right now. right now, if there is anything, just take a moment to view it through the lens of what God is doing in Jesus.
the redemptive story that he's weaving together in Jesus. I want you to view, big or small, it could be a little thing, but whatever it is, just view it through the lens of birth pains. Pain now, real pain now. That's that will produce in eternity, in the big picture, in the hands of a redemptive God, something beautiful and redemptive and good. take time to sit in that truth. And if life is good right now, and you're just like, life's pretty good, actually. I'm not really stressed about that much or worried about that much. Take some time right now to see that reality through the lens of eternity also that the greatest good is the good we'll experience when Jesus returns and reunites heaven and earth and brings a new creation and makes a final end to sin and injustice. And that the good we experience now is just a little appetizer, a little taste of the real goodness we'll experience then. Let's take time to remind us of that, ourselves of that truth too. So just sit in that truth now also. Lord, help us to see through this lens. Help us to live all of life looking through the big story that you're weaving together in Jesus. Help us to trust you. Help us to see in Jesus the, the suffering that produced redemption of Jesus, a picture of what you're doing in our lives. Help us to walk with you. Help us to see the goodness, not as an end in and of itself, but as a taste of the goodness that we'll experience in eternity. And help that shape the way that we live. Help us to help it to free us and to be live lives filled with love as a result. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, that's a lens that should not only shape the way we think, but also the way we live. And uh, I purposely wanted to spend the most time talking about what the lens is, and what it means to see through it. But there's more going on in this passage, and um, we'll, we'll spend less time here. Just, I know we're cold, <laughs> and uh, we've been going at it for a while, so, so worry not. But we'll see where else this passage takes us and then we'll close. That it also reframes our priorities. And I'll just, I'll briefly, just to give justice to the facts that the, the, the passage takes us there, I'll, I'll just point these out. We'll debrief these if you're in a, if you're in a, uh, a grounded group, you'll get to discuss kind of how these apply in your life. But uh, also Jesus is showing us how this lens is to be translated in the way we actually live our lives. So he talks about how to live in light of the fact that he's coming again. And, to, and live in light of the fact that we see that Jesus is coming again. That reframes our today. So it reframes our priorities until the day. And Jesus gives a few commands. First of all, he says, don't be led astray. He says there are going to be people that claim to be the one, that claim to be me, he says, claim to 
be, be me, come again. And we immediately think like Charles Manson cult leaders, right? Like, oh, there's, you know, how could I possibly be duped by some weirdo that claims to be the Messiah, right? But we could be duped by all kinds of things because of the pain of the world. Because it's a lot easier to believe things that are untrue when life hurts. Because it just seems like a way out. And so we ought not be too dismissive of the possibility of believing untrue things, even something that seems as wacky as someone saying that they're the one. And maybe it doesn't come and, and so blunt a package as that, but we can be led astray in all kinds of ways. And Jesus says, don't be led astray. Hold firm to the truth even when life hurts. He says, don't be alarmed. Don't be shocked when you see broken things happening in the world, the big picture, nerve-wracking headlines things happening in your life? He says, don't be alarmed. He says, endure in love. He says, the result of the accelerated brokenness of the world is going to be that some people's love grows cold, but then he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved, and he ties enduring to the end directly with the coldness of people's love, of, of, of people's love growing cold, and so the implication is that it's not just endure, like stand firm in the faith. It's endure, stand firm in the faith in a way that produces love, love for people, and love for God, and so endure in love in the midst of a world that's not all that it should be. And he says, in by implication, proclaim the good news of Jesus. He says what God is doing in this age, the reason he's not coming today, although we don't know the day or the hour, but the reason he hasn't come yet is because God is doing something redemptive. He's, he's drawing more people into the redeemed family of God, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so our, part of our priority should be to play our part in that, to to proclaim the goodness of what God has done in Jesus in our lives. There's a new way to be lived. It reframes our priorities today until the day. When we see through the lens, it shapes the way we live. And so I would encourage you guys as you're thinking about what it means to live in light of the fact that Jesus is coming in again and to look through life through that lens. It's to live a new way as a result. But finally... Jesus is reframing our joy in what God has done through him. Reframing our joy in what God is doing through Jesus. You see, Jesus begins, or this, this passage begins with Jesus lamenting for Jerusalem. The whole reason he's giving this teaching is coming on the hills of, heels of Jesus lamenting over the fact that his people did not accept him. This is what he says in verses 37 to 39. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing See, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if we'd been reading this story just straight through up to this point, we would have noticed something really interesting. He says that the people's hearts are hard and they won't see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But just a few chapters before this, less than that, do you know what the people have already done? They've already received Jesus saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Literally that line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting from Psalm 118, the psalm of celebration at, the, at uh, uh, an anointed one of God, rescuing God's people. And they see in Jesus, maybe this is the one. And so they quote that psalm. They literally say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to Jesus as he's coming in. And yet here is Jesus saying, but you didn't really receive me. And you won't receive me until you really say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
So if they didn't really mean it the first time, here's the question that's begging to be asked. What could possibly happen that will make them mean it a second time? If they've already said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but they weren't really receiving him, what could possibly change such that they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and actually receive him? Well, this passage leaves that question hanging, but it, if, as we put the pieces together of what's happening, the story of this teaching happening days before the life, Jesus was taken and betrayed and crucified on a cross, we see exactly what could change his people's hard hearts. We see exactly what could change our hard hearts from the brokenness that we each live out when left to our own devices, from the sin that's deep in our hearts when left to our own devices. We see that what could actually change us to truly receive Jesus, what Jesus is doing, the best redemptive good that he is doing in our lives at this point is to draw us to see what he's already done for us in his cross. Because the thing that could change his people's hearts' hearts from falsely receiving him to truly receiving him is that God would come as one of us, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, would come to live the kind of life that you and I haven't lived. A life free of sin, a life in perfect communion with the Father, and then he would go and die in our place, bearing the weight and penalty and reality of sin in himself, that he would give of himself to suffer in our place, to die and take on all the injustice, all the brokenness, all the penalty of the sin that we deserve into himself. And in dying, not only does he pay our debt, but he, he has victory over the powers of darkness and death and rises as the first of a new creation, kind of a picture of what God is gonna do in each of us in his creation itself. But what we see in Jesus's death is what actually melts our hearts. We see the self-loving, self-giving love of God for you and me. We see the extent to which God would go to rescue us out of our hard-heartedness, out of our brokenness, out of the injustice of this world, out of the injustice that's in ourselves. And when we see that, it changes everything. So Jesus is not just reframing the goodness that's at the end. He's reframing the extent to which he would go to make sure that we are a part of it. That he would die in our place. And this is where we have to close. We have to close as we build towards Jesus' death by seeing the goodness of God's self-giving love. To rescue us out of the age that we're in. To guarantee that there's goodness on the other side that God has done for us that we couldn't have done for ourselves. And so right now, we have some time to worship in response to that reality. I'm going to pray here. We have communion set up as a way for those of us who follow Jesus to remind ourselves of what God has done for us in Jesus. That God has made a way to undo the hardness of our hearts because he's given of himself in love. Because he's paid the penalty of our sin because he has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And we remember that reality. And in remembering that reality, we not only experience his love for us now, but we see the guarantee of the goodness that he's weaving together in our lives in the big picture. And so that's where we end in worship. All right, now I'm gonna pray. I invite you guys to take communion in your own time.
and then feel free to hang out, chat, be together as long as you like. But let's worship in response to who God is. Would you guys pray with me? God, we love you. And we're so grateful for your grace. We're grateful for everything that you're doing for us in Jesus. God, we, um, we pray that you would help us to see through this lens. The lens of what's going to matter in eternity. The lens of what you're doing in the big picture. The lens that we see of what you've already done in Jesus. God, we pray that it would soften our hearts. We pray that seeing the self-giving love of God in Jesus would change everything about the way that we relate to you, the way that we relate to ourselves, the way that we relate to other people. We pray that we'd be a people who endure in love, a people who proclaim the goodness of Jesus, all because we see what you've already done for us in Jesus. We love you, and we ask for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Feel free to take communion in your own time. Worship, reflect, and take some time to connect. Love you guys.